kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Auntie Nanny. Um, with me this week is my bubbly, vivacious, and happy co-host, Miss Jeannie Kay. How are you this evening, Miss Jeannie? Hello, Miss Jan. How are you this? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, I deserve that. That was, that was good. Okay, and the very best producer that money can't buy and i still don't pay him um very how are you tonight very well better now that the internet's working yeah well you know the internet only needs to work part-time apparently no Um, no it needs to be on all the time i'm an insomniac (laughs) if i need something to do the internet must be available hey i agree with you I think the internet really should be available more often than what it is. Um, And it's just, I don't know, it's just such a shame. So um, this week was interesting. Do you want to do the Windows one first? It's up to you. Well, um, I've got three to do about stingrays, so I figured I would (laughs) save those to go together. Um. And then I've got a Greenwald story, which is actually very good. Oh, I did want to say last night I had the unfortunate uh, mistake of walking in the room when someone was watching 60 Minutes. (laughs) I watched 60 Minutes. And does everybody remember when there was that shooting at the military base? Yes. The guy who worked there, he had the clear. Okay. So... They're interviewing all these people about how security clearances are done for the government, right? And they're talking about this guy and how many red flags he had go up and and all this stuff that was wrong with him. Then they're interviewing people from the CIA and they're saying, you know, what a traitor people like Edward Snowden and, and Chelsea Manning were. And how they were all mentally unstable and all this stuff. And, and it was really funny because, you know, my parents are older and they live with me, right? So my mother looks up at me and she goes, Jan, I saw Citizen Four. This isn't, this isn't the Edward Snowden I know. 
And I kind of just laughed and I said, well, you know, you've got to look at who's paying these people's salaries, who, who owns 60 Minutes um, and what their military ties are. And, and sure enough, don't they have all kinds of ties to Raytheon? Yep. The blimp people. So, Not that that proves anything, but I just thought it was funny that they were trying to equate um, whistleblowers with people who have lost their shit and gone in and killed the people they work with. So, well, you mean that, like most CIA operatives then? I guess. It, it was... It was. Um, I believe was, you have to be slightly mentally unstable to work for them. Oh, sorry, sorry. Not mentally unstable. Mentally flexible to work for the CIA, I believe is how they put it. I don't just think you have to be mentally flexible, but um, I find myself wondering what their new litmus test is going to be for loyalty to the United States now. Just from watching the people who run the security clearances and the things they were saying, I I dread the idea that they're going to pour more money into this program. It's, yep. it's going to be real interesting for it's people like who stop, actually get yeah, security clearances stop, now. Stop getting the guys with severe paranoia issues <laughs> to run your security divisions. Yeah, That'll be interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the reason I wanted to do this first is because Very has showed me there are some workarounds for this. And um, because, hey, Windows forced me to upgrade. They forced me onto Windows 10. I did not have a choice. So, yeah. Hooray. Right. Okay. Microsoft admits Windows 10 automatic spying cannot be stopped. And this is from Forbes. Why? Hmm? Sorry, just inserting a random lie. <laughs> exactly. Last week, changes to the Windows 10 upgrade path means it's going to become increasingly difficult for any non-techie users to avoid being push pulled into the Microsoft MS FT plus zero percent new operating system. But given given Windows 10 is better than seven and eight, why would that be a problem? Because of policies like these. Speaking to PC World, Microsoft Corporate Vice President Joe Bellafone explained that Windows uh, 10 is constantly tracking how it operates and how you are using it and sending that information back to Microsoft by default. More importantly, he also confirmed that despite offering some options to turn some elements of tracking off, core data collection simply cannot be stopped. In the cases where we're not provided options. We feel that those things have to do with the health of the system, he said. In the case of knowing that our system, uh, knowing that our system that we've created is crashing or having serious performance problems, we view that as so helpful to the ecosystem and not an issue of personal privacy that today we collect data so that we make the experience better for everyone. This backs up detailed data that some had chosen to dismiss as conspiracy theories. Windows 10 has great potential, but aggressive update and user tracking policies. Still, whether or not you agree with Bellafone's standpoint, that doesn't mean that doesn't invade user privacy. It does seem strange that it has taken Microsoft so long to come clean and admit core Windows 10 background data collection processes cannot be stopped. 
Instead, it gave the impression that turning off all accessible spying options in the Windows 10 settings would provide owners with full privacy. That's tantamount to spying. To his credit, Belafonte does recognize the controversial nature of this decision and stresses that we're going to continue to listen to what the broad public says about these decisions. And ultimately, our goal is to balance the right thing happening for the most people. Really, for everyone with complexity that comes with putting in a whole lot of control and <clears throat> essay backdoors. I'm, I'm sorry that I, I must have Tourette's or something that just slipped out. Interestingly, Belafoni himself won't be around to oversee this as he's about to take a year long sabbatical. When he comes back, however, I suspect the issue will still be raging as windows and devices group head Terry Meyerson recently confirmed windows 10 enterprise users will be able to disable every aspect of Microsoft data collection. This comes in combination with Windows 10 Pro and enterprise users' ability to permanently disable automatic updates, which are forced upon consumers, and shows the growing divide between how Microsoft is treating consumers versus corporations. So how concerned should users be about Windows 10 default data collection policies? I would say very. By default, Windows 10 Home is allowed to control your bandwidth usage, install any software it wants, whenever it wants, without providing detailed information on what these updates do, display ads in the start menu, currently has been limited to app advertisements, and send your hardware details and any changes you make to Microsoft, even if you log your browser history and keystrokes, oh, I'm sorry, and even log your browser history and keystrokes, which the Windows End User License Agreement states you allow Microsoft to use for analysis. The good news is, even if Belafonte states you cannot switch off everything, editing your privacy settings will disable the worst of these. To find them, open the Start menu, Settings, Privacy. The bad news, despite Belafonte's pledge to continue to listen, Microsoft's actions, including the impending Windows 7 and 8 upgrade pressure, suggest the company's recent love for Big Brother tactics is only going to get worse before it gets better. I don't think anybody's shocked, and when they forced me on to 10 it didn't want to let me use firefox or anything i mean it gave me a hard time plugging ghostery back in yeah uh, i, take I it you're love on, ghostery i love DuckDuckGo, and telling me i can't use it is just crazy go ahead uh, i take it you're on home version then yeah I am. yeah i'm on pro but uh yeah the, the guys like all corporate entities um, mm-hmm. A bit delusional. You can't turn off tracking. Well, really. <laughs> well, um, he underestimates people. I blame somewhat. Bill Gates. Bill Gates is an asshole. Oh yeah. Uh, I blame the NSA because they're real big assholes and they want to know what you're doing at all times. For people out yeah. there who aren't as tech savvy, you can. Yeah, before turn anybody off. tells me, yes, I understand. Bill Gates is not Microsoft anymore, but he started this shit, so Bill Gates is an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he he created the corporate climate, yeah, by stealing shit. Um, <laughs> um, but it's okay. He stole it off people who kind of stolen it anyway, so it's fine. Um, right for the less uh, technical people who are worried about Windows Ten, there are a couple of things you can do. That are all mentions going in and changing your privacy settings. But there's also a couple of websites where you can pick up some uh, nice handy software. 
There's Major Geeks, which turns off some of the settings. And then there's good old Spybot, who have modified one of their pieces of software to uh, turn off loads of uh, Windows 10 telemetry stuff. Now, I remember Spybot was like one of the first pieces destroyed. of free yeah. software I ever used. Well, if this anti-beacon uh, monitors Windows 10 and can let you turn off the telemetry tracking. Nice. Um, also, both of those pieces of software I've kind of linked to, uh, <laughs> the programmers that are doing them are saying they're going to keep upgrading it. So every time they find a new piece of tracking, they're going to add a block for that. Now the SpyBot one actually goes into your firewall settings and blocks some of the <laughs> stuff. So they can't even. It doesn't even matter if Windows reactivates it when you're not paying attention. Cool. It won't be able to get through the firewall. Can I make a suggestion too? Don't enable Cortana. Just don't. That's it's in there. Bad. Yeah, I it mean that's you, bad yeah. enough that you know Google can turn on your microphone. Yeah. Whether you want it to or not, you know, enabling the vocal personal assistant is not going to help you with this. No. It's really just not a good. It's not this, a good feature, and yeah. it doesn't really help you with your privacy. Well, the the SpyBot software can can let you completely shut off Cortana. Including disabling it from the boot. So when it starts up, Cortana's um, off. That's good. Whereas she needs... all you can do normally in Windows 10 is tell it you don't want to use it. But yeah. it's still there. Yeah. The software yeah. turns it off. Which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So does anybody remember when John Brennan got, uh, got hacked? His email got hacked by like two 12-year-old hackers. Yeah, vaguely. Okay. So many well, hacks these days. Yeah, but he had a shitty email account. I mean, you know, <laughs> and and he he used shitty privacy settings. Well, uh, the same group of you know young hackers, I guess, went in and they hacked the FBI. <laughs> That's not difficult. <laughs> no, it it must be super easy. But anyway, so they went out and they. They hacked it, and then, you know, they're all about free Palestine. Um, so whenever they hack this stuff, they're going around saying, you know, free Palestine, and here's what we found. So they leaked, oh, God, they leaked a ton of the <clears throat> FBI files, you know, um, which is pretty funny because I'm like, I know, I'm starting to know, I think, almost more about what sort of software the government is using than the government does. Well, I'll, I will insert here, the government is normally about a decade behind in what software they're using. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I For mean, instance, I think it's pretty, I think it's I criminal. bet your government the, will be exactly like ours, and it'll still have shitloads of computers running Windows XP. Well, and, I mean, uh, I think Windows it's 2000. criminal. The banks still use it. That's how yeah. all the ATMs are set up. 
Mm-hmm. Those things are not secure at all, guys. At all. Nope. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, not that I didn't know that any of these files existed, like the National Data Exchange or the Virtual Command Center or Interlink artifacts. I just think it's funny that guys who are, like, between 12 and 15 are leaking major government data now. Although it must be said, the recent talk, talk, hack. Yeah, if you're going to be a hacker in the UK, don't mm-hmm. hack a UK company. Because <laughs> within 12 hours of them hacking, uh, one of them was being arrested. <laughs> yeah. Because... As previously mentioned by Christopher, by, um, by Snowden and his stuff, GCHQ mm-hmm. is really good at tracking people. So literally, yeah, no, day GCHQ... one, they'd arrested one guy who was a 15-year-old, the teenage thing, yeah. and within three days they had four guys in custody. <laughs> it's like, uh-huh. mm-hmm. if you're in the country, don't hack in that country. It makes it easier to find. Oh, boy. Happy November 5th. So, unfortunately, I went to Twitter, which (laughs) I shouldn't have done. So, yeah. Happy November 5th, guys. This is only part one. Government, police, military names, emails, and phone numbers. Why would you hack that? Yeah. Um, That just seems like a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, lots of hackers are dumb. They're really good at breaking in places. But are idiotic at everything else. Because, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> I've done a bit of that in my younger days. But I never went around leaving information lying around, seeing what I'd been doing. If you're going to leave information lying around, there are better ways to do it. Yeah. You know? Well, when I was doing that sort of thing, well, the internet hadn't really been invented yet let alone Facebook. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that that's just stupidity, is going around sticking stuff on social media. Because every time you make a connection like that, leaving mm-hmm. information, you're leaving a trail to yourself. Yeah. Not really smart. Um, so and the way computers work, gonna... the more trails there are, the quicker they find you. Yeah. Said I was going to talk a little bit about the NSA. God, I hate them. Okay, so it it says how often, but not when it discloses software flaws. Okay, so the U.S. National Security Agency, seeking to rebut accusations that it hoards information about vulnerabilities in computer software, thereby leaving U.S. companies open to cyber attacks, said last week that it tells U.S. technology firms about the most serious flaws it finds more than 90% of the time. The resources may be misleading because the NSA often uses the vulnerabilities to make its own cyber attacks first, according to current and former U.S. government officials. Only then does the NSA disclose them to technology vendors so they can fix the problems and ship updated programs to customers, the officials said. At issue is the U.S. policy on so-called zero days, the serious software flaws that are of great value to both hackers and spies because no one knows about them. The term zero day comes from the amount of warning users get to patch their machines proactively, 
A two-day flaw is less dangerous because it emerges two days after a patch is available. The best-known use of zero days was in Suxnet, the attack virus developed by the NSA and its Israeli counterparts to infiltrate the Iranian nuclear program and sabotage centrifuges that were enriching uranium. Before its discovery in 2010, Suxnet took advantage of previously unknown flaws in software from both Microsoft Corp and Siemens AG to penetrate the facilities without triggering security programs. A shadowy but robust market has developed for the buying and selling of zero days, and as Reuters reported in May 2013, the NSA is the world's top buyers of these flaws. There's a link to that story if anybody is at all interested in it. The NSA also discovers flaws. Hang on. Sorry about that. I'm grabbing the link. The NSA also discovers flaws through its own cyber programs using some some to break into computers and telecommunications systems overseas as part of its primary spying mission. There's a shock, right? Nobody knew they did that. Some zero days are worth more than others, depending on such factors as the difficulty of finding them and how widespread the targeted software is. While some can be bought for as little as $50,000, a prominent zero-day broker said this week that he had agreed to pay $1 million to a team that developed a way to break into a fully updated Apple iPhone. Nothing is safe anymore, guys. Um, Not that it was before. No. Shakari Bakar of the firm Zerodium told Reuters that the iPhone technique would likely be sold to a U.S. customer only, including government agencies and some, quote, very big corporations. Government officials say there is a natural tension as to whether zero days should be used for offensive operations or disclosed to tech companies and their customers for defensive purposes. In the wake of revelations by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden, and a Reuters report that detailed how the government paid security firm RSA to include NSA tainted encryption in its software, a White House review panel recommended titling government policy more towards defense. President Barack Obama's cybersecurity coordinator, Michael Daniel, then said he had reinvigorated the review process that decides what to do about each flaw that comes to the government's attention. The details of the process remain classified, but interviews show that the government uh, that changes sharply elevated the role of the Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible for the defense, and had not previously been at the center of intergovernmental debates on the issue. After Daniel described the revamped process broadly, the activist Electronic Frontier Foundation, love those guys, sued for documents about it under the Freedom of Information Act. The most significant release in that case came in September with an updated and partly redacted 13-page memo outlining how agencies should handle knowledge about software vulnerabilities. The memo states that the NSA defensive arm, the Information Assurance Directorate, served as the exclusive secretariat for the process. That's a fucking mouthful. Homeland Security. A redacted portion of the memo lists the agencies that participated in the process as a matter of course. An unredacted part refers to other agencies that can ask to participate on a case-by-case basis, and the Department of Homeland Security appears in that section, along with the Departments of State, Justice, Treasury, and Commerce. That raises questions in my mind. Uh, Two former White House officials said the memo referred to an old system before Daniel reorganized it about a year and a half ago. 
In an interview, Daniel told Reuters that DHS was a key part of the new system, which is run by the White House's National Security Council. DHS is at the table in the process. I'm running, Daniel said. An NSA spokeswoman referred to the questions about its policy to the NSC, where a spokesperson referred Reuters back to the NSA. It's great. The NSA says on its website that it understands the need to use most flaws for defense. In the vast majority of cases, responsibly disclosing a newly discovered vulnerability is clearly in the national interest. But there are legitimate pros and cons to the decision to disclose vulnerabilities, and the trade-offs between prompt disclosure and withholding knowledge of some vulnerabilities for a limited time can have significant consequences. It's just bullshit. They will tell you what they want you to know when they want you to know it. Yeah, it's basically what I get from that. Lovely cycle where one department refers you to another department who refers you back to the first department. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, the White House did that to me. Hmm? The White House did that to me. Yeah, well, the White House did that the last time Vapors wrote a petition. Remember that? Remember the petition we killed ourselves to get all these numbers for? We got the numbers and the White House said, yeah, we're just going to kick this back to the FDA. It's kind of what they do. No, it's kind of, I find government confusing and it's kind of like a big knot, but I think it's like that on purpose. I don't think that's a design flaw. I think that's a feature. You know what I mean? I think they built it that way to make things easier for themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm. yeah. But in the okay. case of yeah, the software vulnerabilities, luckily, <laughs> and God knows how much longer it will continue, there are still a few independent security firms that do mm-hmm. report these issues, like mm-hmm. Trend, um, Kaspersky, and others. Although, yeah, even Kaspersky's starting to get slowly bought up by bigger corporations um, but as long as you still have these independent little um, programmers out there uh, checking the security yeah most of the stuff the NSA finds is normally not much use to them Yeah. Um, that's why it's 90% it's because 90% of the stuff that they come across is already known about by other security firms, so it's useless anyway. So yeah, yeah they've got, there's no harm in them disclosing it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, an ongoing. Well, it used to be corporate espionage. Now the government's getting involved. Well, you know. I, I think if if you look at the big picture, you take an overview from the top and you look down. Um, if you look down from the top of the pyramid, which we're not standing on, obviously, um, at the top, it used to be the government and, you know, somewhere down the sides used to be the people at the very bottom, you have the people and at the top, you've got the corporations and the government is somewhere down closer to us, but not really. Um, it really is an ugly fucking system. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this is what happens, you know. This is what happens when the government decides it wants to enter private partnerships with corporations, uh, otherwise known as fascism. 
Okay. Um, oh, let's have some fun and talk about the TTP, huh? Or the TPP. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's always fun, right? Okay. <clears throat> the full text of the TTP is released, and it's really, really bad. Yesterday, that was a couple days ago, a month after it was announced that the TTP was finalized, the official text was finally released. Immediately after that, USTR, somewhat oddly, reported the whole thing to Medium, apparently in an effort to appear transparent, for an agreement that was negotiated for years in secret. The overall document has been broken out into many different sections, but if you add it all up, it's over 6,000 pages long. Lots of nice, light bedtime reading there. The Washington Post did what none of the governments actually did and made the document searchable. And there's a link for that. Can somebody grab that and put it in chat in case anyone's curious? Um, I spent much of yesterday trying to read through the various sections, and it appears to be super problematic. Along with the text, the UT-USTR posted a bunch of nonsense propaganda about what they want people to think the TTP, the TPP, the Toilet Paper Proposal, I guess we can call it that, is really about. But the problems with the TPP run deep. Despite earlier promises from both the USTR and Australia that intellectual property would not be subject to corporate sovereignty provisions, which they call Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS, they absolutely are. And this is a massive problem. It means that any country that's a member of the toilet paper partition can effectively never more, never, I'm sorry, never move its intellectual property rules in the direction of better benefiting the public. Because some foreign company will claim this takes away their expedited, expected expedited profits. Section 9.1 lists intellectual property as the type of asset that is part of the ISDS process. We already know what a mess this can create. Remember, Eli Lilly is currently using NAFTA's corporate sovereignty provisions to demand half a billion dollars from Canada after Canada rejected two of its patents because Canada realized the drugs that Eli Lilly had tried to patent did not deliver the benefits the company claimed while trying to get the patent. Canada said it was a good reason to reject the patent. Eli Lilly claimed that this was taking away its assets and demanded half a billion dollars. Now imagine what would happen if anyone tried to, say, shorten copyright terms, or require registration for copyright, or fix the patent system so you can't patent obvious and broad concepts anymore. Does anyone doubt that the country that did so would be beset by these kind of attacks, which wouldn't even be handled by courts, but by a tribunal of corporate lawyers, often the very same lawyers these companies hire for other work, including intellectual property, and its investment chapter is a poison pill designed to ensure that intellectual property can only continue to ratchet up rather than back. Now, there's a very limited expectation concerning the revocation, limitation, or creation of intellectual property rights if it's consistent with the TRIPS agreement, an earlier trade agreement regarding intellectual property. As KEI notes, this limited exception isn't going to cut it. Exceptions for intellectual property in the TPP investment chapter are important and often designed to accommodate existing state practices in the United States or other countries. But one should not overstate the degree to which intellectual property rights are excluded. 
the meaning of the WTO TRIPS agreement and the TTP IP chapter itself will be subject to review and arbitration led by private rights holders on topics such as adequate or reasonable compensation or remuneration for non-voluntary uses of intellectual property rights, the standards for granting patents and other issues to determine to the extent an action of policy is consistent with TRIPS or the TTP, the TPP IP chapter. This not only leads to forum shopping, TRIPS and TPP IP obligations can be intercepted via TTP ISDS, but also empowers private right holders, investors, and not consumers to bring cases and benefit from sanctions against government. KEI also notes that exceptions don't apply to all of the newly expanded IP requirements the TTP, the TPP has introduced, including things like much higher damage requirements and the possibility of criminal charges for the vaguely defined commercial scale infringement. What's kind of amazing here is that we spent years warning about problems with the intellectual property chapter of and the investment chapter individually. And the absolute worst part of this agreement is the way the negotiators tied them together in a ridiculous and dangerous way. This is much, much worse than many of the things we feared would be in the agreement, and it's made even worse by the fact that the USTR directly promised this would not be in the agreement. There are a number of other problems as well. KEI warns that at least part of the e-commerce provision can be read to ban a requirement for open-source software, which would seem to undermine certain open-source licenses, like the GPL. Michael Geist notes that the document confirms that Canada has basically agreed to wipe out many useful copyright reforms from a few years ago and to extend its copyright yet again, robbing the public of public domain. Of course, that raises the question of whether or not someone could make an ISDS claim that Canada is taking away their investment in Canada. Oh, who am I kidding? The ISDS doesn't apply to the public, just to companies. There are also, as expected, serious problems for affordable medicine and health care, privacy, surveillance, and more. Despite claiming to demand non-discriminatory treatment of digital products and cross-border transfer by electric means of information, an anti-censorship blocking provision, the agreement lets Malaysia off the hook on such requirements. In addition to that, last month we wrote about how it appeared that the negotiators had carved tobacco out of the ISDS section, but upon reading the whole thing, people are pointing out that it's not actually true as it makes that part voluntary for countries to decide themselves. In short, the TPP appears to be a massive mess, and in some ways worse than we feared. According to some, concurrent with the release, President Obama told Congress of his intent to sign the TPP, which just started the 90-day clock for Congress to review the agreement, conveniently making sure that much of the debate is limited by the the end-of-the-year holidays, long congressional recesses that happen around this time, and other key end-of-the-year business. In short, this agreement that was negotiated in near total secrecy, unless you're a big corporate lobbyist, is a really bad deal, and the administration is going to play every trick it can come up with to get it approved. Now would be a good time to let your elected officials know that they need to vote against the TPP. Yes, it's not good. No, it's not. It's really, Um, really bad. Um, More countries need to take the sort of stand Sweden does. Um, um, especially the the intellectual copyright stuff and copyright in general. Uh, well, this is why the guy who invented DVD rippers can probably never leave Sweden again in his life, because uh, mm-hmm. there, 
all that stuff got thrown out of court trying to get him extradited to the States for copyright infringement because they're like, no, he just wrote the software he's not actually stealing anything but the TPB pushes that kind of thing further so I can't wait because, yeah Sweden's um, not very pleasant to corporate interest <laughs> no, they're not, but I I think what I find disturbing is what this leads to is things like we're already seeing happening in the UK where they're saying you can't delete your browser history for a year and fucking Theresa May hmm. um, and they want to ban the hyperlink that's yeah. just going to make shit like that so much easier this yeah. is going to force everybody onto the dark web whether you wanted to go there or not because I mean I'll tell you one thing People will, but the regular web, <laughs> right? But what I'm saying is, um, you're going to want to be free enough to discuss things with your friends and family that you're going to go fuck it and just drop right out. Everything they do has an equal and opposite reaction from the people. If you make it so we can't protest, we're still going to do want. This is the problem with government. People want to be free bad enough to break a bad law. It's the way of the world. It's the way it's always worked. And government, big government on both sides of the issue, fail to realize that this is a problem. And then you involve corporations in the mix and you get shit like these bastard trade agreements. That slow sucking sound, that's your freedom. That's not just jobs. That's not just money. That's not economics. That's, that's all of it. It's everything... That has to do with you being free, getting sucked away from you. So, yeah, well, not a fan of the toilet paper project there at all. The the transatlantic one. <laughs> They're still trying to negotiate that one. But luckily, you know, largely, yeah. Europe is still very pro-privacy and corporations need to be held responsible. Consequently... Um, I'm sure the lobbyists are enough to come up with much bigger brain envelopes for similar legislation to be brought in by the EU. Um, oh, I'm I'm sure they will find a way. I'm sure you know some of those missing files that have just gotten thrown out of abuse cases will turn up conveniently or something. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not um, really hard to buy a politician. They're all corrupt as fuck. About about half the EU is very against this sort of corporate deal. It's uh, a good thing. And then there's the UK and Italy and other places where they really like corporate money uh, <laughs> that are probably going to be pro. So it's probably going to take a lot longer for the transatlantic one to get negotiated. Well, it's already been knocked back by the EU four or five times. You know, um, we're, we were actually talking about that stupid broken social scene video my friend sent me earlier. Um, and I remember those protests they had in Canada against was the G20, yeah. G10. Um, and, you know, now they've made that damn near impossible to do. You know, um, we talked before about the Le Maza, you know, where they've made it. It's, it's, you can go to jail in Spain 
for standing out in the street and protesting what the government does. Yeah. For speaking against your government online. This is a really so, dangerous time. It must be really good for some of the uh, older Spanish people who lived through the revolution to see it all getting rolled back. I, I think everything's kind of a big cycle. Th this can only last so long. You'll, you'll only step on people for so long before they go, fuck this. But once that happens, once the powder keg gets ignited, you A, you don't know what's going to do it. And B, you don't know how bad it's going to be. So it just amazes me that the drive for money is so great that it's leading to this. Well, see, that's that's the problem. These big corporations and the, the rich up at the top really don't care if a revolution happens or not. Because they know uh, they can just hide most of their assets and weather it. That's what they always do. That is what they always do, but I don't know. This time just feels different. I don't mm. know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just being aware of how many times this has happened in history. Or the government has pushed too far and the people have gone, okay, that's it. So, I don't know. But um, we live in interesting times, and as the Chinese consider that a curse... It would be absolutely right, in my opinion. Uh, so this is a short one. How law enforcement can use Google Timeline to track your every move. Oh, and before you start reading this, mm -hmm. by the way, Google is quickly approaching um, the category that Bill Gates leads in my life. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> it's funny how... Google is so compartmentalized in a lot of ways. There are portions of it that rapidly defend customer data to the point where they spend millions of dollars before they will hand over anybody's data. And, and it's happened more than once, right? Then you've got this other collect it all, save it all, where the NSA of the internet kind of thing going on is very bizarre the way this company is fucking split up. Um, but I, I guess they Maybe all are. Maybe they're just bipolar. No. Just, just I think they're just two. really compartmentalized. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> they're like Elliot. Um, okay. How law enforcement can use Google Timeline to track your every move? Uh, the recent expansion of Google's Timeline feature can provide investigators unprecedented access to users' location history data allowing them in many cases to track a person's every move over the course of years, according to a report recently circulated to law enforcement. The personal privacy implications are pretty clear, but so are law enforcement applications. According to the document titled Google Timelines Location Investigations Involving Android Devices, which outlines the kind of information investigators can now subpoena. The timeline allows users to look back at their daily movements on a map, that same information is also potentially of interest to law enforcement. It is now possible to submit a legal demand to Google for location history greater than six months old, the report says. This could revitalize cold cases and potentially help solve active investigations. The report was written by a law enforcement trainer, Aaron Edens, and provides detailed guidance on the wealth of historic location information available through Google Timeline and how to request it. 
A copy of the document was obtained by The Intercept. The Intercept is really a good publication to read. The expansion of Google's timeline feature launched in July 2015 allows investigators um, to request detailed information about where someone's been down to the longitude and latitude over the course of years. Previously, law enforcement subpoenas to the company could only yield recent location information. The 15-page document includes what information its author, an expert in mobile phone investigations, found being stored in his own timeline, historic location data, extremely specific data, dating back to 2009, the first year he owned a phone with an Android operating system. Those six years of data, he writes, show the kind of information that law enforcement investigators can now subpoena from Google. The document also notes that users can edit and delete specific locations in their history or an entire day, stressing the importance of preservation letters for criminal investigations involving Android phones. Ultimately, Google has made it very easy to delete location history from a specific date he wrote. There is no indication data is recoverable from Google once it has been deleted by the user, the report says. Location data is only stored in users' Google accounts if they enable the feature. Individual Android users can turn it off, but users often don't. The ability of law enforcement to obtain data stored within the privacy company pri- with the privacy companies is similar, uh, whether it's Dropbox or iCloud. What's different about Google Timeline, however, is that it potentially allows law enforcement to access a treasure trove of data about someone's individual movements over the course of years. The report also advises investigators to remember there is a significant amount of other information obtained, I'm sorry, retained by Google. Consider including Gmail, photos, videos, and search history, contacts, applications, and other connected devices, Google Voice and Google Wallet, if they are relevant to the investigation the report suggests. Investigators are also advised to include a non-disclosure order with their search warrants for Google data, which prevents the company from notifying the account holder that their data is being provided to law enforcement. It is impossible to know how many of these requests for historic timeline location information have been made by law enforcement since Google does not specify what type of request it gets from law enforcement. Google's transparency report provides information on a number of requests received from law enforcement. The most recent requests go up to the end of 2014 and do not cover the period of time after the expanded timeline was launched. In the first half of 2014, Google received 12,539 criminal legal requests in the U.S., and in the second half, it received 9,981. The major barrier law enforcement faces is that Google does not provide any additional advice or help on deciphering data once it is turned over under subpoena. Based on conversations with other law enforcement investigators and prosecutors, they have resisted attempts to bring them into court and discuss the issue, Eden wrote. Google does not provide expert witness testimony, Eden said in response to the intercept questions, noting that there is a similar practice to that of other companies like Facebook. His report, he added, was written to help law enforcement in the absence of assistance from Google. Google has always been wary of any perceived cooperation with law enforcement, even before Edward Snowden, he told The Intercept. We respond to valid legal requests and have a long track record of advocating on behalf of our users, a Google spokesperson told The Intercept. That makes me feel great. (laughs) So, yeah. Another reason to use Firefox. Well, I never liked Chrome anyway. And yeah, I kinda, my, my phone, I blank a lot of the 
Google stuff regularly. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know, I mean, I hardly ever have any of the stuff that could be tracked easily turned on. Uh, the only time I have location tracking turned on is when I'm having to use it as a sat nav. So, and I delete that later. So, yeah. That's the smart way to do things. Now, I store, I hate to say it, the notes for the show are stored in Google. And the reason they are is because it's free. You know, none of us gets paid to do this. So, all our show notes for the last three, four years are stored in Google servers. But, you know what? It's not like it's something that isn't already out there. Um, I, uh, like I said, it's free, so that's why we use it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if if you didn't have the notes saved, they'd have to come and listen to the show. I mean, well, then they'd be really upset. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I um, it's like I said, it, it feels weird reading this stuff about Google and the stuff it can provide and. It's like reading about the evil empire, and yet they don't really want to provide any specific help to decipher this stuff. I, I don't know. Yeah, that that is the classic uh, corporate thing with government. We demand Here. this data. Here you go, and you give them the raw data. And the government has no idea what to do with it. We don't understand well, this stuff. Well, that's not our fucking problem. You asked for it, well, we gave it to you. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's why they want the they're trying so hard to stop companies encrypting stuff because yeah. they, they want it to be basically in black and white, in plain English, so they don't have to do any work to get the data apart from ask for it. No, which, funnily I, yeah, enough, but corporations I mean, are not happy with. I mean, yeah, and that's fine if that's what you want. But look at all the. Look at all the fucking data it has. Look at the size well, of that data retention center they're building in Utah. Well, I've said how many it supercomputers is have, it going to take to sort through all that shit? Yeah, they have more data than it can ever possibly handle mm-hmm. in any way. So, um, yeah, this is why, well, we've said it before GCHQ, very efficient. That's because they target the resources. They don't just grab everything just because they can. That's right. stupidity. Yeah, but they also they also have some of the best of the best, the people who really started this technology on the path it's on now. Most of them work for GCHQ. Yeah. And I, I think we know that. It's, it's not something I'm saying that I can prove, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we know that, right? Well, most of the most of the top guys in the field have normally come from um, Cambridge because they do work at Cambridge Laboratories, mm-hmm. which is where Rutherford did his work and all that kind of thing. So, um, but they have a computer section as well, and loads of these encryption and data guys that are high up in these companies. That's the sort of place they've gone to study. So, yeah. I don't and governments know. can't um, afford to employ them, usually. So, yeah. yeah. So well, the corporations get them. 
all I can say is, you know, all this stuff, all this interconnected stuff where we don't don't unplug from our phones we don't walk away from our computers we don't go out and just go somewhere with our friends anymore without our phones we don't go out to eat without them i I left my house today did you did you leave your phone at home (laughs) yes good girl i i take my phone with me whenever i go out i live in a town that doesn't have cell coverage yeah you know what's what's really i have data turned off on my phone Unless I need to use data. So, What's really yeah. freaky is um, I know at work, right? We've called in before because we have scan guns, okay, and they run on our Wi-Fi network. <laughs> so you know, it gets better and better, right? So I've I've had to call in to tech support, and, and our tech support is just fucking terrible. These people need to go back to school. They're they're like Microsoft people. They're putting broken crap on top of broken crap and calling it good. So I've called before and I've been like, okay, you know, there's something wrong with the Wi-Fi in this part of the store. And so they ask you for the first part of your password and you give it to them and they tell you all this stuff about yourself. And what's even creepier is when they go, is your, (laughs) is this the name of your cell phone? You're like, why do you even need to know that? Oh, we just track them. Well, you definitely don't need to track my fucking cell phone at work because mine sits in my locker. So, no, that's not my cell phone. Okay, well, we need you to go out with the scan gun and go around the store and stand before the signal boosters and, and we'll try to figure out you know, what we've got to do to turn it on or turn it off or whether we've got to go put more you know, satellite dishes on the roof or whatever. Um, but it freaked me out so much that my work was tracking where my cell phone was. Who was using it when. And then they start telling you, okay, well, there's this person. They're in the deli and, and this is the name of their cell phone. Well, how would we? How would I even know that? Yeah. And why would I want to? And why do you need to know it? I don't know. It's just, it's creepy. The amount of time you can be watched with a phone with all that raw data it's pretty creepy and apparently well, I, I have, anyone can fucking do it well yeah I, I have the names of loads of people's phones because um, we we have a role playing group meet mm-hmm. in the flat I live in mm-hmm. and they all come round with all their mobile phones and as you say uh, can't live unless they're connected so they use our wifi and a lot of information is stored in the router. And, yeah, I don't use it for anything. And it annoys me, so I regularly blank all the information. <laughs> but, yeah, everywhere you go, if you've got the data turned on, you're leaving this trail. Yep. And the amount of information it leaks about you is fucking freaky. I'm like, I, I need to go back to the days where I had a fucking flip phone. That thing well, I mean, leaked nothing. Well, it did, but we not, like went that. That. Um, not like that. Not like that. Yeah, I mean, you know? I can't afford to have a contract phone, which is a good thing, because it means, as I say, I only have data turned on when I actually need to use it for something, <laughs> which means I'm not leaving this trail everywhere I go when I'm out and about. Yeah, and more people need to think else that is- way. 
Everybody, you're all most people are like, oh, I got this cheap unlimited data thing. It's great. It's like, yeah, all the tech companies know what kind of underwear you've got, what you had for breakfast, uh, where you've <laughs> been, where you're going. What you watch on YouTube, what you yeah. type in your search engines, what your emails look like. And it can tell a really interesting story about you. I mean, I don't really want to, but I would almost like to see what my metadata looks like. Um, there is a site where you can... I can't remember the name of it. There is a place. Go, go look up Google metadata. You can go and look at it. Okay. People I just were think doing, it would be it, really... It would be interesting to see about, what it you It happens leak. about every year or so. People post it on Facebook. Oh, go look at this. You'll be amazed what you find out. <laughs> Right. So yeah, some somebody got me to do that, and my page came up kind of blank. They're like, "Don't you do anything?" And I'm like, "No, I yes. just delete it." <laughs> yes, but I I get rid of the data. Yeah, yeah, because you can do that, and you don't even really need to be tech savvy to dump your data. No, I mean that can be done by someone with little to no how to. What uh, is worrying is Google quite possibly has permanent copies of that somewhere because right. of Google and as you say it's a bit um, multi-faced shall we say so who <laughs> yeah. knows but the easy to get at stuff you can certainly uh, blank quite easily yeah which is if you ask me that's kind of a good thing um okay it's a little after seven, so everybody who's been waiting for the Kasab date and listening to me bitch about privacy, I, I guess we're going to get Alex. So. Okay. <laughs> so you can hear that. Hi, Alex. Hello. Okay. Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 11-9-2015. Hi Alex, how are you this evening? Good, how are you doing? I'm good. So, I guess we'll start with the famous question, what's been going on this week? Well, I was uh, contemplating the value of starting every, every one of our podcasts going forward and perhaps every email we send to people with uh, the FDA deeming regulations are going to destroy the vapor industry. Maybe I should say that louder. Did that not have the impact? <laughs> um, it has the impact for me, but I feel like I've been running around screaming it for years. So. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I just I just read another article out of Cook County, and one of the quotes is uh, that uh, coming from a, a retailer that they are uh, in favor of FDA regulation. Oh my god! Well, they they welcome the FDA regulation. <laughs> I don't I, I I don't know how to really put this any more softly. Um, if if you still think that you are in favor of the FDA regulating electronic cigarettes, you are not paying attention, and you have not read the impact that these regulations will have. Um, this is not, I, I, I posted up a kind of a snippy Instagram post today. Um, <laughs> there, there's, there's really no more room for debate 
here on what the impact of the deeming regulations will be. We're not talking about just prohibiting sales to minors. We're not talking about just putting warning labels on e-liquid, which in itself carries its own kind of damaging effects. Um, we're, not, we're not talking about product standards. We're not, we're not, that's, that's not, that's not it. Um, there are millions and millions of dollars involved here that none of these manufacturers are going to be able to afford. And I, I, I kind of imagine that some of these people are looking at this and thinking like, oh, well, I'm just going to grab the nearest, uh, you know, Farsalino's study and uh, maybe something from, from Michael Siegel and, um, and maybe Casas got some stuff on their website. I'm just going to package that together and say, this is the name of my juice and uh, we're going to submit that to the FDA and everything is going to be fine. Mm. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I, I think people really, really need to wrap their head around just how bad this is. Uh, and uh, I'm headed to Tulsa this week. I'm going to be attending the vaping convention circuit in Tulsa. Um, so if you're in Oklahoma and are coming to that event, uh, come and say hi. It gets kind of lonely over at the Casa table because we're not selling anything. Um, but uh, we love to talk to people and um, bring your bring your skeptical friends, and we'll talk about FDA deeming regulations. Uh, and I'll give them some flyers, and, and they can go hand them out, and, and they can take action. It'll be great. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm attending. I believe there's going to be sort of a, a uh, a business type dinner event on Thursday. Right. Um, I, I don't have any of the details, but uh, one of the things that I we try to do when we go to these things is actually talk to the vendors and, and get them to understand just how bad this is going to be. Um, we don't obviously represent their interests, but as consumers, we want to continue shopping at their store. So uh, if, if the FDA doesn't allow you to carry any products, you're not open, um, which yeah. is bad for us. Mm -hmm. So that's my opening rant. The FDA deeming regulations are real. <laughs> you, need <laughs> to, you need to be paying attention and taking action. Uh, and no, you, you don't support them. Um, I'm not that dictating. Was a rant? Yeah. That, that okay. was rant. That was a very calm rant. Maybe that's me ranting. I, I don't know. Alex, Alex, you need lessons, sweetie. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty that's even keel. I mean, it's, you know, maybe I should get more emotional. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know how much more uh, you can uh, emotionally appeal to people. This is a, this is a logic and reason thing now. I mean... I'm not saying go full Spock on people, but maybe they'll grasp that. Yeah. One thing um, to point out to people that we haven't, um, I guess it was last year, one of the, uh, I, I was watching something else with uh, Cynthia Cabrera from, uh, from Safada. Um, and she made a point and a lot of other people are going to be making this point going forward. Uh, and, uh, this is this has to do with OMB OIRA. Mm -hmm. um, what the Office of Management and Budget is looking at 
while they are reviewing the deeming regulations is primarily the economic impact that this rule will have on the country. Um, and so one of the things that I think consumers should should think about, uh, and this is something that we had people do last year, but we have a lot of new people involved and they may not have participated in this call to action. Um, I'll have to, I did, I did research this before I came on. I, I should go back and look at our list. Uh, you can, if you, if you're, uh, if you're interested, you can go back through our FDA calls to action. It'll take a little bit of hunting because our website is a little bit, uh, changed around right now. Um, but one of the things that we released last year was talking about the, the variety of products that you have. I mean, just look around your space and see, you know, how many different brands, how many different flavors, um, how many different nicotine strengths, how many different devices. These are all, every single one of those different products that you have on your table is, is going to have to go through FDA's pre-market approval application process. So, you know, each one of those products represents a million dollars, possibly, right. or, or more. Uh, each, I mean, that, that one bottle <laughs> represents, yeah. at the very least, hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get one application in for that product. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's money that you spend on those products, and that money is paying somebody's uh, salary or wage. It's keeping a store open that's providing employment for several people and so on and so forth. So uh, there are the, the economists can work out the, the minutia of what I'm trying to put together here. But um, I, I think it's an important thing for consumers to start thinking about is that, you know, we don't have the same perspective that the businesses have on the economic impact of these regulations. But we certainly have. Um, some perspective of the economic impact, what we buy. Um, and then, of course, I, I think, you know, there's the economic, uh, th there's a dollar amount that you can assign to people's um, well-being. And obviously, you know, our, our improved health mm -hmm. uh, means, you know, we're not losing productivity. Um, I guess we should probably not mention the amount of money that we don't spend on maybe certain prescription medications or hospital stays. Cause that's sort of a negative, I think. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah. You can talk about, you know, the money that you're spending in your local economy and, um, you know, the amount of time that you can still be at work because you're not sick or something like that. Right. So anyway, just throwing it out there, there's no official call to action regarding that right now, but I think over the next couple of months, that's, that's something for people to, you know, take an inventory and see just how much money uh, you can personally uh, account for in, in the industry. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's that's that. And, of course, I, you know, I think going forward, we're going to have more. Uh, I mean, we have a call to action up right now. Nothing has changed um, as far as encouraging people to call the White House and urge OMB to, well, I guess at this point it would be urging OMB to just reject the FDA regulations outright. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that's, we're sort of at that stage. So um, that call to action is, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's going to be active until we get some sort of official word from OMB. Right. Uh, uh, and, of course, the HR 2058. 
Um, I'm moving along quickly here. I don't know why, but I am. <laughs> it's okay. Um, the, uh, so the, the, I guess what kind of the quote I dragged this out of was an article that was written about the uh, proposed tax in Cook County, uh, Illinois. Right. Um, we still have a call to action active for that. I know that um, some people have already spoken to county commissioners. Uh, I believe there was already a hearing, um, but uh, that's that's no reason to to, to back off. Um, mm-hmm. it, this is not a point and click type of thing. This is a local type of alert. So uh, the contact information is up there, some talking points, uh, and people should absolutely take advantage of the information we've provided to uh, give some feedback to Cook County commissioners. Right. Um, and I need to do a little bit more research. Um, I guess it was last week or the week before last, um, while we were, I think while we were on the air with, with, with Jeannie, yeah. um, I saw people chatting about the, uh, the tax in Chicago, which mm-hmm. apparently had been bumped up to 55 cents a milliliter Um, I was looking at the budget process for Chicago and although the budget has been approved, Mm -hmm. there's still an opportunity to make changes from what I understand. I don't want to give anybody any false hope and I don't want to spread any misinformation about the process, but it looks like, you know, between now and January 1st, uh, there is still an opportunity for people to tweak things. So the budget's set, they've got what they're going to be spending money on. And they, they know where that funding source is. So if you're going to carve anything out of the budget, you also need to find something to replace that money. So that's there's potentially some room to work there. And um, I, I'm honestly kind of shocked that Chicago went full tilt. I mean, this is a 55 cents per milliliter is well over 100% tax. Um uh, and if you do, if you use the Americans for Tax Reform math, it's an infinity tax. But um, just just because no tax other than sales tax has existed on it before, um, right. but uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's. I, I would say that's likely. That is probably the highest tax in the country. Probably. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, yeah, Chicago's gone off its rocker, and and I, I really, I really hope something happens with that. Um, and I'm going to be reaching out to to people, I think, over the next couple of weeks to see if there's anything that, that we can do to help support um, getting that out of the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, Chicago and Cook County folks, um, it's still, it's it's absolutely vital that you put some pressure on, on your your policymakers there. Um, and I guess just a little bit up the way, moving right along, um, this is a call to action that I'm going to be putting the finishing touches on tonight. Um, St. Paul, Minnesota. Sorry. St. Paul, Minnesota mm-hmm. is looking at uh, an ordinance, ordinance 15-57, uh, which this has been introduced uh, this was introduced a week or two ago, uh, and this would prohibit the sale of flavored vapor products with the exception of tobacco, 
menthol and wintergreen um, <sighs> essentially folding you know the, the 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 target of this i think it was originally flavored cigars mm-hmm. whatever um, and they've just included vapor products in this um, so you know we, we went through you know the, the the trendy bit of legislation that made the rounds over the past year or two has been the uh, usage bans, indoor indoor vape bans, public right. vaping bans, mm-hmm. uh, and now we're moving on to the flavors, and um, this is. I, I can't give, I I can't confirm anything, but I know that, you know, I I know that Greg had tweeted some, Greg Conley from the American Mm -hmm. Vaping Association, also on our board of advisors, had tweeted something out that, uh, you know, he saw or heard, heard from a guy who knows a guy that works at the FDA, apparently, uh, that the uh, flavors are going to be given six months to get there get their pre-market approval applications in everything else gets two years there's a two-year grace period first six months yeah so when here's here's the process when the deeming regulations are finalized from that date manufacturers have two years to get their pre-market approval applications in right meaning if your product wasn't on the market in february 15th 2007, you know, mm-hmm. by that date, you have to submit a pre-market approval application. I, I don't know how to use smaller words to describe that other than, you know, you're screwed. Um, yeah. No, that's what we were talking about at the beginning. Yeah, no, it, it, it makes sense though. I mean, when they've, cause I know Bill Godshall and I know that uh, Cynthia Cabrera have both done different, workups on what it would cost per per man hour to do this and i think the last number i saw that was even low was going to be like two million dollars per product yeah that's frightening yeah and that's and that's not a guarantee that two million dollars buys you a bunch of paper and some stamps that doesn't that doesn't buy you approval that's just you get your application in and yeah. while the FDA reviews your application, your stuff can stay on the market. But, you know, give it another year and they can come back and say, denied. And if you make any changes to your product in that time, guess what? <laughs> you get to do it all over again. There's two million more dollars. So, yes. um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the rumor that I... Personally, I, I don't think I have much of a problem with spreading this because people are still, I think, willfully in the dark about the impact these regulations are going to have. So let's stoke up the fire a little bit. Mm-hmm. Things like tobacco, menthol, and wintergreen are likely going to get a longer period of time to go through the approval process. But but, but there's still a f- but there's still an added flavor, Alex. Sure, it depends on how it's written. I mean, and I think it's it's not too it's not too weird to assume that that a tobacco flavor would be something that they would say, okay, yeah, that's tobacco flavor. 
Um, but if you're going to talk about, you know, gummy bear and cherry crush and whatever other sensationalized cherry limeade, yeah, whatever they like to talk about, um, mm-hmm. it, it, those things I think are going to immediately receive a lot more scrutiny. Um, and so it's, Again, I, I, I hate to be the person that's sitting here condoning spreading missing misinformation, but we don't, but we don't we don't really yeah. the the problem is we don't really know. Even yeah. with with our meeting with the the OMB, we can't see the regulations before we go in to tell them the impact this is going to have on consumers. We don't really know. All we can do is go with the best information we've got. If that's the best information we've got we've still got to run with that and and other people are going to be having these meetings as well it's better to go with the rumor even just in the back of your head i think knowing that that's a possibility than going in completely ignorant isn't it yeah and i I think that we i mean we actually do know quite a bit we don't know that much that's new um i think so the deeming regulations have been released since the last time CASA met with OMB. Um, I, I believe the, the meeting with OMB happened prior to FDA regulations being published. Um, so, yeah, in the interim, we have seen the proposed regulations. We haven't seen any changes to the regulations, but there's no reason to assume that they have been changed in a substantive way in our favor. Um, if anything... Uh, you know, if that leaked document that it was the advice to, to industry, um, right. if that if that, you know, if that demonstrates anything, it's that they've just sort of defined things a little bit more. They haven't they haven't done anything to, to mitigate the impact to the industry or consumers. They've just used better words, I guess. Um, I, I, have, I have a question. I'm not trying to muddy the waters or anything, but didn't the FDA release a statement that no draft guidance or anything has, has been released to any? No, um, they didn't they, really say that, I don't believe. But go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's more along the lines of they didn't authorize anything to be released, um, and they... I don't think they're going to confirm that what was released came out of their office. Uh, and of course the FDA statement that the press release was followed shortly by, um, uh, I think, uh, at least one congressperson, uh, coming out and saying that they wanted to launch an investigation about the leak. Yeah. Which sounds just incredibly worthwhile. Uh, <laughs> <so>. sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, regardless, I, I just kind of using that as an example, I think, of what, you know, those missing bits of information that we have, I think, are just more refined definitions. Uh, it's, it's sort of more writing. It's not necessarily that they've considered any of the input that, that any of us have, have uh, presented. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, and regardless, you know, this is the reason why HR 2058 is so important. Mitch Zeller has stated publicly many times that they are going to follow the letter of the law. 
And as far as the Center for Tobacco Products sees it, the letter of the law means if your product wasn't on the market prior to February 15th, 2007, you're going to have to go through the pre-market approval process. So that one point alone, (laughs) that's really, I think, what makes this so disastrous. The whole thing is disastrous. If if this requires an act of Congress to change it, because an act of Congress is what made this possible in the first place. There's also, I mean, there's the lawsuit route, which is inevitable. Um, you know, it's I think it's safe to say that there are, you know, a few people out there with their finger on the button. Um, so. Uh, again, I'm I'm not trained as a lawyer. I can't really speak to, you know, how that process works or what the outcome would be, but, um, you know, things that Congress can't get together and decide sometimes are decided in the courts. So, um, that's, that's also an alternative, but, and I want to say this with all sincerity and strongness None of that's a guarantee, and none of that is a reason that anybody should relax. Um, don't don't just vape on, man. Uh, you know, pick up the phone and call your your representative and 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 send an email. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. Should Engage I, with your Congress people. They they forget that they represent you. They represent your interests. You are the ones that hired them. You put them in office. They're supposed to represent your interests. Make them do it. Step and, up and tell them. Make them do it. And, and feel free to, to use that, that, that talking point of, you know, how much you shop at your, your friendly neighborhood vapor store and how much money you spend there. Um, and and, and bring, bring a shop owner with you. If you want, uh, it's, you know, if, if, if dollar signs are what make these people perk up their ears and listen, then, uh, don't, don't be bashful about, about bringing that, that point with you to a meeting. Oh yeah. Dollar signs and votes. It's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it almost seems like a numbers game. Uh, make sure you appeal to the banker in them, I guess. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, don't give up. We haven't, don't give up. So, that's, that's, um, that's that. I, I do want to bring something up that I, we haven't released a call to action on this because, frankly, uh, I think Utah Vapors have put together a pretty solid thing here, um, and uh, I, I just, I honestly haven't devoted enough time to trying to improve or offer anything different. Um, but if you are a Utah resident uh, or you're somebody who does business with Utah, um, please take a moment and check out Utah Smoke Free Association. Uh, actually, this is this is the front page of their website. Um, this is worth reminding. Um, the, I think the last day for public comment 
on this regulation. And this is what this is, is I believe this is the Utah Department of Health implementing things that were uh, laid out in House Bill 415 that was passed this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there's a breakdown here for retailers, manufacturers, and for consumers. Um, and uh, comments are due by 5 p.m. on October 15th. I'm oh, sorry, 5 p.m. on November 16th. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're all, all these things are getting emailed to one person in the Utah government. So um, the email is listed there and uh, pretty clear instructions from Utah Smoke Free. So uh, take advantage of the work that they've done. Yeah, no, it, it it's good, actually. Um, and it really is I- impressive what happens when you have uh, people in each state who are really plugged into what's going on in their territory. The, the kind of work that they can pull together. Yeah. Yeah. And these guys, and, and you know, these guys I honestly have, I, I, I caught some criticism from somebody uh, in our Facebook page. Um, I, I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to put this person on blast or anything. It's, I mean, it, it's a fair point. Um, I just think that some people misunderstand the, the role that, that we take as a, as an organization uh, and of course, with the amount of work that we had on our plate this year, um, there there are some things that fell through the cracks, um, and there there were some things that we you know weren't able to follow up on. But when when we have somebody who is actually on the ground in a state that is you know, developing relationships with lawmakers and has a network of people there. Most of the time, what we're going to end up doing is just rebroadcasting the stuff that you've put together and trying to reach people in our email database that may not be plugged into what you're doing. Um, And, you know, to be honest, as long as everybody's kind of talking about the same thing, um, I I don't necessarily think that it, it, it does it may or may not do anybody any favors for us to maybe try to step in and take the reins on something. Um, that's, that's not our, our role. Um, so I, I just, anybody in any of these state associations that, that did work this year to, you know, protect consumer access to vapor products in your state, just know that we fully appreciate your efforts and we're here to support in most cases uh, and I, I am a rather accessible person. Uh, I, I am on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. My email is aclark at kasa.org. Uh, I can be reached through board at kasa.org. Um, mm-hmm. when, when those emails from those are not being buried by Chinese spam uh, and <laughs> other weird emails that we get, I yeah. you know, will make it a point to respond. As long as I can understand what you've written, um, I, I will will try to respond if it's a legislative issue. Um, so uh, again, at, you know, going into next year, next year is I, I try I try not to think about it too much. But I, I, you know, and Julie's even said, you know, 2016 is going to be just as bad, if not worse, than 2015. So yeah, it is. everybody, yeah. you know, 
the, the FDA deeming regulations are horrible and mm-hmm. the, the likelihood of them being finalized and introduced, you know, probably spring of 2019, 2016 is, is pretty high. That's, that's a good, good chance, but there's still going to be a gap between when those regulations are finalized and when the FDA starts enforcing them. So there's a two-year gap there where states are still going to be able to make the argument that the FDA doesn't regulate these products. We need to step in and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, And of course, even after FDA regulation, taxes and states doing things like regulating flavors, that's still an option. It's still on the table. Uh, All of the bad policy that we saw this year, the states can still do all of that stuff. FDA regulations or not. So um, just a, 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 I guess, a polite reminder, if if you will, any place that we can help uh, for folks at the state level, please reach out to us um, and and we'll, we'll do what we can. I'm I'm, Jeannie even point. I I can't even rant properly. Uh, (laughs) I I am a very even keeled person to work with and, and very receptive. So, um, uh, Alex is very calm. You're, he's yeah, you're he's very calm old, with the amount of stuff he's dealing nice with. Nice guy, Alex. You really <laughs> are, and you work tirelessly. But, honey, you you don't bitch well. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a woman thing. It it might be it might be like a, a genetically uh, predisposed thing that women are just able to do. I I don't know. Um, but yeah, no. Um. Nothing, let's be honest, in the next couple of years, nothing (laughs) uh, in the states, uh, in the local legislation is going to get really more awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not, it's not going to get better. Um, So, yeah, it's, we're, we're, we're just warming up here. Yeah. That's it. We're just getting started. So on that note, uh, please, we should probably wrap this up before Julie uh, puts a hit out on us. Um, Mm. uh, (laughs) On that note, please support HR 2058. Uh, Tell your friends, tell your vape shop owners. Um, There's a flyer that they can print out and post up in their window there's bit.ly links, there's QR codes, there's all kinds of stuff that people can use and, and spread Instagram around. Instagram pictures. I, yeah. I saw somebody hung up one of our flyers in like a barbecue joint. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's good. So yeah, just taking the random bulletin boards and, you know, in the laundromats and stuff. That's, that's a yeah. great idea. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's, there's community bulletin boards all over the place. Print a couple off, hang them up. That's, you know, that's your two minutes of activism for the month and you'll have done more good than you know. Yep. Um, so, um, okay. We, if you've not already joined CASA, please do so at CASA.org. We are CASA Media on Instagram and Twitter and um, Google+. Plus. So, Come on down and join us and, and see what we're doing and help us help you to stop the forward march of 
bad regulations. Perfect. <laughs> it's good. Um, thank you so much for everything you do for us, Alex, and we'll see you next week. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Night. Night. Well, you know, you know what's going through my head right now? Is Alex gone? Yeah, Alex is gone. Okay. All right. Does anybody remember um, the old Muppet show? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know the two old guys? Yeah. Sitting yeah. up in the in the, in the opera scene. Yeah. My favorites. The bitchy yeah. old in the balcony. Yeah. Um, sometimes when I look at the stuff I've put together for the show and then I hear the Kassa update, I actually hear those two old guys singing in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, yeah. Back to more 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 cheerful news. Um, you know what? It, I think it's stingray time. Let's, let's do this. Stand by for action. We are about to launch Stingray. can happen in the next half hour. Gosh, where to begin? Um, Since we're going to be talking about stingrays, I guess what I'll do is uh, swing down in the show notes and find what the ACLU wrote about them before we talk about the IRS having them. And then we talk about the fun of dirt boxes and uh, other other assorted wonders of the the beauty of stingray technology. This is from the ACLU. Um, And this is called The Four Biggest Problems with the Department of Homeland Security's New Stingray Policy. This is from October 22nd. Yesterday, the DHS released its new policy on the use of stingrays, mass surveillance devices used by police to identify and track phones, often without a warrant. The new policy, presented at a congressional hearing, came only after pressure was created by several high-profile media stories congressional inquiries, and similar Department of Justice guidance. More information about how stingrays operate in personating legitimate cell phone towers and sweeping up location device information for all phones within range. I'm going to grab that link and put it in the chat. So if you're at all curious, you can look at it. It is in the link I put in the chat. Stingrays 
are sort of like a surveillance Atari. They were once cutting edge, but are light years behind newer technologies. Oh, that's debatable. Now there are surveillance devices that allow the police to collect the content of calls and texts and even hack into phones. In other words, the government is only now developing a privacy policy for technology that was used domestically in the mid-90s and has already spread to roughly half the states. And the policy doesn't even touch future surveillance devices that may collect the same information or more. Second, the other piece of bad news. The policy that has been released is riddled with gaps and loopholes. The DHS policy contains several positive elements, such as a detailed warrant requirement, limits on the retention of information, and a requirement that judges be informed about how the devices operate with warrant applications. These reforms are certainly an improvement over the status quo, but they are not yet adequate. These are the four main problems. The guidance only applies to cases in which stingrays are used as part of a criminal investigation. In cases where the Department of Homeland Security is patrolling the border, defined by the government as a 100-mile zone, um, and that's th- this is a fun little article to peruse if, if you want to know what the border looks like to the government. That's the 100-mile radius map there to look at. Um, conducting certain immigration activities or monitoring conferences as local police have done, no protections apply. Two, even in cases where the policy does apply, there are numerous loopholes that permit the police to use the device without a warrant. Requiring a warrant in some cases is certainly better than no warrant requirement, but it's concerning that the policy contains a warrant exception in broadly defined exigent circumstances, undefined exceptional situations, and for national security investigations covered by the FISA Act. Because, you know, the rubber stamp court will definitely not allow them to abuse it. The policy does not apply to state or local officials who receive funding to purchase stingrays. So, for example, police in Wisconsin, Florida, and Maryland have received money from the Department of Justice and the DHS to purchase surveillance technology do not need to abide by any of the new policy protections. In other words, though the federal government has imposed futile and illegitimate secrecy requirements on states who purchase these devices, they've taken no parallel steps to use their coverage to ensure constitutional use. One might think they're protecting, that protecting the Constitution would be a higher priority than trying to hide this technology from the American people, and one would be wrong. Four, the policy completely ignores the rights of individuals to be notified when information from a stingray is being used against them. We now know that prosecutors have made a concerted attempt to hide the use of stingrays in cases. The DOJ has asked prosecutors to refer to stingray information as information from a, quote, confidential source in court filings or, if necessary, drop cases where defendants raise stingray challenges to prevent disclosure of information. Instead of remedying these practices, the DHS policy is completely silent on the obligation of the government to inform individuals when their information is collected and used. The result? Individuals most harmed by the stingrays may continue to be deprived of the information necessary to challenge their legality. The DOJ and the DHS, I love when they write this stuff, should immediately take steps to remedy the deficiencies in their policies and require greater greater transparency. But even this is, at best, a partial solution. We need to stop chasing surveillance technologies and instead plan for the future. That would begin with comprehensive 
can't speak, comprehensive legislation and agency policies that protect any collection of location, device, or sensitive information, regardless of the technology used. California has already passed a law that takes this approach. The federal government should follow suit. And yay. One from the Guardian. The IRS possessed Stingray cell phone surveillance gear documents reveal. Everybody who's shocked by that, please raise your hands. I know I can't see you in the chat raising your hands, but I'm sure very few went up. The Internal Revenue Service is the latest in a growing list of U.S. federal agencies known to have possessed the sophisticated cell phone dragnet equipment known as stingrays, according to documents obtained by The Guardian. Invoices obtained following a request under the Freedom of Information Act show purchases made in 2009 and 2012 by the federal tax agency with Harris Corporation, one of a number of companies that manufactured the devices. Privacy advocates said the revelation shows the wide proliferation of this very invasive surveillance technology. The 2009 IRS Harris Corp. invoice is mostly redacted under Section B4 of the Freedom of Information Act, which is intended to protect trade secrets and privileged information. However, an invoice from 2012, which is also partially redacted, reports the agency spent $65,652 on upgrading a Stingray 2 to a hailstorm, a more powerful version of the same device, as well as $6,000 on training from Harris Corporation. Stingrays are the best-known example of a type of device called an IMSI catcher, also known as a cell site simulator. About the size of a briefcase, they work by pretending to be cell phone towers in order to strip metadata, and in some cases, even content, from phones which connect to them. Despite their extensive capabilities, they require only a low-level court order called a pen register, also known as a trap and trace, to grant permission for their use. A man's secrecy has so far surrounded these devices, but a picture is slowly emerging which shows widespread use. Various revelations by the ACLU and news outlets, including The Guardian, has shown at least 12 federal agencies are already known to have these devices, including the National Security Agency and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The IRS makes number 13. In November 2014, the Wall Street Journal uncovered an operation run by the U.S. Marshal Service using a Boeing-made IMSI catcher known as a Dirt Box. This is the first time the IRS had been found to own the device. Devices are also used by local and, in some cases, state police departments across at least 20 states, though a culture of secrecy which surrounds Stingray devices has meant the full scale of their use remains unknown. Guardian report in April revealed a large... Revealed a non disclosure agreement that local police and prosecutors were forced to sign with the FBI before using stingrays, which mandated them to withdraw or even drop cases rather than risk revealing their use. And in September, it emerged this withholding of discovery evidence by police in Baltimore could lead to as many as 2,000 cases being overturned. It remains unclear how the IRS used the stingray devices. Hmm. Why would the IRS need a stingray? A spokesman for the agency did not respond to a request for comment. Mark Matthews... Because you got to use the phone to talk to the banks in the Cayman Islands where you're hiding your money, I guess? (laughs) Good guess. Sorry. No, no, it's actually a good guess. Um, I I would assume, or, you know, you talk to your attorney, attorney about hiding money or 
stealing money from someplace that's privileged in confidential information. But in some cases, we'll see that a stingray does far more than you think it does. And that's, that's probably, I think that's the next story a little further down. <clears throat> Uh, Mark Matthews, a formerly, uh, formerly, a former deputy commissioner for services and enforcement at the agency, who now works for the law firm Kaplan and Drysdale, said that while he attends many conferences on the IRS and tax law enforcement, he had not heard any scuttlebutt about the agency's use of the stingray. (laughs) I, I know I couldn't I couldn't make that shit up. Um, Matthew said there are currently between 2,000 and 3,000 special agents in the IRS who form the Criminal Investigation Division. They have the ability to get pen register orders, the only authority needed to use Stingray devices. He said the IRS on its own usually uses gentler investigation techniques. But increasingly, investigating agents from uh, the agency are bought on board for joint operations with the FBI and other agencies when the latter need financial expertise to look at, for example, money laundering from drug organizations. From these joint operations, he said, the IRS had moved the drug work and had learned a lot of aggressive techniques in the money laundering and drug world, and these bad habits were leaking into the tax world, which was supposed to be their real mission. Federal agencies using surveillance technology... That far outstripped the limits of what a pen register was designed to do is not new. That used to be a worry at the FBI with their pen register devices, Matthew said. There was always a little slot where you could put a headphone jack, which could turn the device into a full wiretap, for which they did not have warrant clearance. And they said, trust us. Not very convincing for civil liberties groups. Nate Wessler, a staff attorney with the Speech Privacy and Technology Project at the ACLU, told The Guardian... The info showing that they are using stingrays is generally consistent with the kinds of investigative tactics that they are engaging in, and it shows the wide proliferation of this very invasive surveillance technology. It's used by dozens, perhaps hundreds, of local law enforcement, used by the usual suspects at the federal level, and if the IRS is using it, it shows just how far these devices have spread, Wessler says. Matthew said he had not heard anything about stingrays despite speaking to his contacts in the tax industry. So either this hasn't ripened yet in a tax case, 95% of which end in a plea deal, so there would be no such disclosures, or this is saved more for money laundering, drug, terrorist financing-like investigations. It could be as silly as they got to the end of the year, had some extra funds, and somebody said, we need some of those devices, Matthew said. It could literally be that silly, but it could be something different. It could be that they've decided to use them in cases where they are the primary detective agency, and we haven't seen it yet in the private sector. <clears throat> that was two. <sighs> Gotta love it. God forbid the federal government put money back. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they, they never do. That's because they would get less funding the next year. I, I think we've talked about that before, haven't we? Yes. Like what it what it looks like in October, which is the end of their fiscal year, where they're buying like silver coffee cups and crap. Well, because they're know, like I understand, like school districts not giving money back. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of the times these districts have have scrimped and saved to do things, and they're like, okay, well we've got this technology grant, and right. if we don't use it, we have to give it back. Well, you know what? We've got three computer labs that are running on systems that are over 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And and I have actually seen that firsthand. 
Okay. Right. Seen that. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, I know that in the budget we decided that, you know, well, we're going to have to save this because what if the phone system craps out? Well, the phone system didn't crap out. So, you know what? We have to use this or lose it. Now we're going to upgrade these computer labs. And I get it in that situation. I understand it. But for a federal alphabet soup agency Mm -hmm. to say, oh, well, you know, I think we'll just go out and buy something that we absolutely don't fucking need is... (laughs) So I it's guess, stupid. yes, I understand it on one hand, and on the other hand, it's just bullshit. In this case, it's the other hand, which is absolute bullshit. Right. Um, you know what's sad? I said I had three on stingrays. Can you check the document? Do you see the third story in there? Uh, no. Yeah, I don't either. Neither do I. Yeah, I saved it, too. Hang on. Let me see if it's in an earlier draft or something. Um, not that stuff wasn't horrifying enough for him. <laughs> but um, what the third story was about, if I can fucking find it, because all of a sudden I can't access anything on the internet. Um, just the document that I've got open and just the page that I'm on with the chat. That's all I can access. The third story was about how they found out that the IMSI catchers with a really small systems upgrade. Do you know what they can do now? They can tap into your phone. They can download your texts. And they can check all your voice calls and voice messages. So, you know, Stingrays are not this harmless little old piece of technology we thought they were with the slight upgrade. They're just as dangerous and invasive as any technology out there. I didn't think they were because the way the way they're acting. Yeah, you know um, what I mean. They're they're fooling your phone into thinking you're on your network. So yeah, the phone will be fully open. Oh yeah, I mean, and it puts you down to three G, which is like the least secure network, and the two G's less secure, but three G's, you know, by far less secure out of all the networks. Yeah, but then it'd take them ages to download that 2G. Oh, I know. But, yeah, I mean, you would notice something. Yeah. Okay, so that third story is just not there. Okay. Oh, so, yeah. Hmm? The four biggest problems with the DHS new stingray policy? No, that was the first one we did. That was the first one. The third one was all about, you know, how that $6,000 upgrade turns it into, like, a super IMSI catcher. And how much worse it is. So I will dig that out for next week because, you know, you can never have as much fun as you can when you hear the Stingray theme song. Um, well, I did prom- also, I, I want to add one of the features will be, and one of the uses the IRS mm-hmm. can put them to, if they suspect you're being dodgy with your tax return, they can check how often you go to work. You just have an IMSI catcher near where you work, and it'll detect every time you go near it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And how long you're there. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Stuff like that. Very true. Very scary. So you have an agent sitting there in a car watching. (laughs) 
That's very invasive, but um, not beyond the scope of the government or, you know, beyond their sliminess. Okay. Um, so I said I would talk about this one, and I think this is going to be quick. Um, San Diego gets in your face with new mobile identification system. The San Diego Regional Planning Agency, SANDAG, oh, what an unfortunate acronym, has been quietly rolling out a new face new mobile face recognition system that will sharply change how police conduct simple stops on Americans. The system, which allows officers to use mobile devices to collect face images out of the field, already has a database of 1.4 million images and serves nearly 25 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies in the region. Over the summer, the EFF said a California Public Record Act to request to Sandag for more information on the program. From the records received, we've learned the program is called TACDIST, T-A-C-I-D-S, Tactical Identification Systems. Serves law enforcement agencies as diverse as the San Diego Sheriff's Department, DEA, ICE, the California Highway Patrol, and even the San Diego Unified School District. The officers use a Samsung tablet or Android mobile phone to take a picture of a person in the field and run that picture against a database of mugshot photos and DMV images from across several states to learn his or her identity. According to users, the system returns high accuracy results in about eight seconds. The Center for Investigative Reporting published an in-depth report on the program based in part on research conducted by the EFF in the ACLU of San Diego and Imperial Counties. The devices are supposed to be issued to terrorism liaison officers, but none of the documentation so far has shown any nexus between tactics and use and terrorist activities. A chart... Uh, let me grab the chart for you. A chart we received shows that as of July 2013, there were 133 Tactist-enabled mobile devices out in the field. While the San Diego County Sheriff's Department had the most devices, 55, and had made the most queries to the system, 1,280, it was not the most proportionately active user. That honor went to the San Diego State University PD. The department had only one device, and presumably only one user of that device, but still used it to make nearly 200 queries. CIR obtained more recent numbers that show the program has since expanded by another 45 devices, with a total of 5,629 queries since Tactus launched. Even the California Department of Insurance and the Del Mar Park Rangers now have mobile facial recognition devices. One of the most concerning aspects of the system that Tactus allows officers to load photos to its database from the field. That means that officers can stop a person on the street, take his or her picture, enter that picture into a biometric database based on little or no suspicion. One anecdote, an official report from an Immigration and Customs Enforcement officer was particularly chilling. Today, while conducting warrant services in Oceanside, we made contact with the neighbors of a subject we were looking for. As we were talking to the individuals who lived next door, our spidey senses were tingling. So this neighbor became the focus of a field interview. The subject was being evasive answering our questions. It was determined that the subject was in the United States illegally, so we arrested him for that. 
I decided to transport the subject downtown, still not knowing exactly who I had in custody. While driving him to jail, I prodded a little more, and the subject stated that in 2003, he received a conviction for a DUI in San Diego, and that was the only time he was arrested. So I whipped out the droid and snapped a quick photo and submitted for search. The subject looked inquisitively at me, not knowing the truth was only eight seconds away. I received a match of 99.96%. This revealed prior arrests and convictions and provided me an FBI phone number. When I showed him his booking photo, his jaw dropped. Thanks again for the opportunity to evaluate this device. A tactics draft policy document shows that the officers may collect face images in three distinct circumstances, each of which is problematic in its own right. First, officers may take photos of a person who consents to have his picture taken. The Supreme Court has said in several cases that if a person answers police questions when he should feel free to leave, that encounter is consensual and it doesn't trigger Fourth Amendment protection, even under circumstances where police conduct is such that no reasonable person would actually feel free to leave, such as when the cops block an exit or show their weapons. Based on laudatory comments about the tactics system, like the one above, it appears that officers are exploiting that perception to use tactics to identify people who aren't under reasonable suspicion. In the second scenario, discussed in the draft policy, officers may collect a face image from anyone lawfully detained. In 2004, the Supreme Court upheld a Nevada law requiring people to identify themselves to police officers. The court held that as long as these stops were based on reasonable suspicion of criminal activity, they too did not trigger Fourth Amendment or even Fifth Amendment protections. Stopping someone to take their picture to identify them would likely receive the same treatment under the court's analysis. However, as we've seen in the recent revelations about the New York Starp and Frisk program, an overwhelming majority of these types of stops are not actually based on any objective reason to suspect a person of wrongdoing. And the NYPD's own reports show these programs overwhelmingly impact minority groups. The third scenario contemplated by the policy is the most concerning. In that scenario, the cops are allowed to collect photos of people with whom they are not even in contact. This includes photos from security cameras and social media, as well as the capturing of facial images from a distance as part of surveillance operations. As discussed in testimony to Congress on facial recognition last year, Taking a person's photo and entering it into a biometric database without her knowledge, or his or her knowledge, can have a serious chilling effect on First Amendment protected activities. The Supreme Court has long recognized the societal value in the ability to remain anonymous and the ability to associate with others privately without fear that the government is watching. Using face recognition technology in the way proposed by Sandig destroys the anonymity and puts everyone under the threat of government surveillance. Although the draft policy includes some measures intended to protect privacy, these measures do not go far enough. For example, the policy explicitly allows face image recognition based on First Amendment protected activities like an individual's political, religious, or social views, associations, or activities, as long as that collection is limited to incidents directly related to criminal conduct or activity. But criminal conduct or activity is such a vague concept that it places no effective restrictions on police action, as we've seen in the ACLU of Northern California's case challenging California's DNA collection law, even peaceful political protests can result in arrests and biometric collection. Not so long ago, our society would have recoiled from this type of stop and search. As an Arizona Supreme Court justice noted in 1983, 
the thought that an American can be compelled to show his papers before exercising his right to walk the streets, drive the highways, or board the trains is repugnant to American institutions and ideals. In 1990, the Florida Supreme Court said police questioning based on no individualized suspicion was foreign to any fair reading of the Constitution and compared it to Hitler's Berlin, Stalin's Moscow, and white supremacist South Africa. It's disheartening to think how much has changed in the last 23 years, and especially the years since 9-11. We hope that San Diego residents will push back on tactics before the program is rolled out to additional devices and agencies and linked to fixed video cameras in court buildings and public transportation. We also hope that Americans across the country will question whether the impact of this type of technology on constitutionally protected activities is worth the huge cost and the minimal benefit to law enforcement from its use. Yes. And they plan to have every cop carrying cameras that they turn on when they're talking to people anyway. So, yeah. Although, the the whole database lookup thing, that's, um... To get around that problem in the UK, where, you know, they're not allowed to take your photo unless you say yes, but really they're quite strict on it here. Um, they get around this by having specialist police officers. You'll love this one. They're called recognisers. <laughs> They've specifically looked for people that have excellent social memories. They employ them as recognisers. So when you get a guy who gets um, arrested regularly, these people remember them. So if they detain somebody, they can get him to look at live feeds from security cameras and go, oh yeah, that's such and such, he's been arrested before for X, X and X. (laughs) So it's not just technology that's doing it. British police forces are doing it without using the technology. I would almost rather be run through a human filter. Now, at least with a human filter like that, it's not going to be stored in some biometric database without passing Hmm. through the human brain first. Yeah. And I know that sounds fucked up. I don't uh, know any other way to describe it. uh, I only found out about this because there's a they did a TV show in the UK daytime TV which I don't normally watch but I happen to have it on in the background Mm -hmm. but it was about um, Oxford Street in London which has some of the highest rates of um, pickpocketing unsurprisingly and shop theft in the country Mm -hmm. since it's one of the main shopping streets and yeah there's there's two of these guys permanently there and any time they get a call from one of the, the police in the street they have a look at who who their person's interested in and go, yes or no, whether they need to be followed or not. Um, you know, Quite but intriguing. still, I'm, I'm going to keep saying it. It's still a human being. It's still yeah. a human being. It's still not sticking your face in a database. Oh, and the other thing, that chart, yeah, the 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 campus cops at San Diego, yeah, that that guy's just trawling for people with minor drug charges that have joined the university. I bet that's what it is. He's very bored. He looks, he looks like a stoner. Let's see if he's <laughs> on the database. I bet it's something as simple as that. But as you say, yeah, bored. 
Were we on the air earlier when Jan said that she needed to watch more TV? (laughs) (laughs) Was that was that comment recorded for posterity's sake? Because I I mean, you have just admitted to watching TV in this show. Jan earlier had said that she needs to watch more TV during the show. I'm just beginning to think that this show is going to hell in a handbasket. What the fuck with all you people watching TV? Uh, yeah, actually, my like TV say, usually actually consists of it. hearings on Capitol Hill that would make you want to put a gun in your mouth. Hmm. Yeah, you and C-SPAN. Oh. I tend to have TV on as background noise. I don't actually watch it. <laughs> I don't really do that. I, I stream a lot of music, or I'll just go into my music files and hit uh, shuffle. Well, I do, that I do well. a lot of reading yeah. that way. You know, I don't do so much TV and, you know, with the toilet paper party that I've been reading lately, the TPP, <laughs> um, yeah, that the, you wonder why I say shit like I need to watch more TV. Um, I do, but I like less shit like that horrible 60 Minutes thing last night where they where they compared whistleblowers to mass murderers. That was just fucking terrible. Like, um, no, I, I think you're... You're off here. <laughs> I think you might. Your analogy is a little fucked up. Um, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, the facial recognition thing is. Um, yeah, we're getting very minority report. Yeah. yeah, you know, I always thought pre. I when it came out, I was like, oh, that's chilling. But um, the longer time goes on, the more stuff I see the more creeped out I am by the idea that these authors who wrote things like Minority Report and um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, um, I'm more freaked out that their vision of the future is gentler and kinder than the one I see. (laughs) I'm fucking serious. So, uh, I did did tell you before, I believe, that... that one reason why the U.S. got into the whole Star Wars project was due to one of the advisors being a sci-fi writer. Sci- oh, yeah. That is some <laughs> freaky shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's a good idea. Uh, this let's, could be let's... possible. So they spent billions on it. You know, don't get me wrong. Science fiction is our window into the future. But when your future is written by Philip K. Dick. Yeah. You might want to look at that. Like I said, I think with persistent surveillance technologies, the only way to kind of roll back the clock in any way at all is to make it prohibitively expensive. Go ahead. I prefer the Stan Lee version. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I do too until Civil War comes out. As long as we don't Then we'll see who really likes it. As long as we don't descend into George R. R. Martin type writing, <laughs> otherwise we're all dead. You know, well, because he know, does write sci-fi as well. You know, so but hold on. If it's the George R. R. Martin version, then at least we know it's going to happen very fucking slowly. <laughs> Winter will and, be coming for don't years go to at that point. Yeah. Years. Yeah, just don't go to parties. You'll be fine. No weddings. No, I don't want to go to a wedding or a party. Not ever. Thanks. I know it's rude. I don't care. (laughs) I like living. Here, you want to be the king? Fuck no, they all die. 
<laughs> oh, and, and if you're a nasty evil ruler, you can never go to the toilet. <laughs> and to anybody that's not read or watch Game of Thrones, we're sorry. <laughs> Actually, yeah, the the Game of Thrones books are just like these big voluminous volumes, and they're really really good. But I think it's slightly terrifying that I started reading George R. R. Martin when I was in high school. He wrote a, a whole bunch of vampire books that were just really really interesting. Right. And of course, they were like scary, not ooh, sparkly, shiny fucking Twilight <laughs> vampires. So it was really great stuff to read. Um, and fast forward a few years, I hadn't read any of his stuff. And then somebody gave me what was it, a, a story of fire and ice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Song and I started reading that. And it was like, yeah. my God, it's the same guy, but he's he's got like diarrhea of the fingers like Stephen King he just writes and writes and writes and writes. not that this stuff is not interesting but when you have to hire somebody on staff full time to read your books and go no no this character from two books ago had blonde hair and da 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 you might have a problem so <laughs> this is why winter will always be coming with this guy because you know well I mean t- Terry Pratchett had to employ somebody to keep them straight but that's because his Brain's falling to bits. Well, so right, at least but he's Discworld is also a huge series of books. Yeah. You know, that was not a small undertaking. By the way, I highly recommend all the, the Discworld books. Another really good book is Good Omens. Oh, yes. It's a classic. That was a really great book. Um, You're all soft so. southerners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, lots of fun there. Um and that might be the hap, hap, happiest point in the show. Okay. I take it you won't want for it then. Fair enough. So, advert? Oh, hang on. That wasn't playing. I know why, though. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Have a good night. See you next Monday. <laughs>